0: To the Astrophys Podcasts. Today is Thursday, the 20th of October 2016. My name is Brendan O'Brien and the title of this week's episode is Science is a Verb, Not a Noun We take a good look at the CSIRO Parks Radio Observatory when we talk with operations scientist John Sarkissian Each session we'll have co-presenters we'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy we'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda to wrap up each show We'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of AstroBlogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello John. Hi Brendan, how are you mate? Very good, thank you. How's everything going? All very good here in northeast Victoria. Okay,
1: <laughs> that's right. So it's a beautiful day. I don't know if you can so I've got the video on, you can see the telescope behind me oh,
0: there. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. What a view. Yeah, that's on my bucket list, another one of the many places I want to go. Yeah. Today it gives me great pleasure to speak with John Sarkissian. Who is the operations scientist at the Parkes radio telescope? Now, John, can you tell us how did you first develop an interest in science?
1: Okay, well, it actually goes back some some time. Um, in fact, to the twenty first of July, nineteen sixty nine, I guess. Um, <laughs> At the time, I was six years old and in first class, and with my fellow classmates, I sat cross-legged on a cold wooden floor in the school assembly hall and watched Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon. Little did I know at the time that the very place that was receiving those television pictures and beaming it to 600 million people around the world would be the place that I'd end up working at some 30 or so years later. And so I guess you could trace my interest in science back to that, but I really didn't get into it until about fifth class or so when, as part of a library assignment, we were taught how to use a library to research information and the teacher asked us what we wanted to research so that we could go into the library and look up the information, learn how to use library cards and things like that.
0: Very good job.
1: I was born in 1962 in fact the day I was born was the day Mariner 2 was launched to Venus the very first interplanetary space probe and so you could say I've had it in my blood to you know be interested in space and space travel and so on I do understand how that can inspire you to do science and astronomy.
0: Fantastic John and then after your time at school you moved on and did a Bachelor of Applied Science in Physics were you already heading into radio astronomy at that stage? Yeah no I at that time I
1: started work at IBM in the mid 80s and I thought I really should be doing a degree that's more applied and so on so I could apply it to my work there and so on and I did the applied physical because it was very hands-on I'm a very hands-on sort of person I I really like that I don't like just sitting down and not getting involved you know I like to to make things and fix things and and play around with it for me science is a a verb it's not a not a noun Um, you've got to get your hands dirty to do it and tinker with the tools and so on you know as a a young man I, I built my own telescopes optical telescopes and made little crystal sets and things like that so I wanted something hands-on and an applied physics course was just ideal for me I'd always been interested in astronomy since fifth class when I did the library project. My project was on astronomy. At the time, I didn't know what it was, what it was called. I said, I told the teacher I'll do the sun, the stars, and the moon. And she said, oh, you want to do astronomy, (laughs) (laughs) John? And luckily, another boy in the class wanted to do space travel. And so she said that, well, since we're doing something similar, why don't we work together? And his name was Hamish Walsh. and, And we ended up becoming really great friends and egging each other on. And the first task we did in that library assignment was to look up NASA, find out what it actually meant. I had no idea at the time. I found the book, Challenge of the Stars, by Patrick Moore in the library, and it had an official commendation by NASA, (laughs) and I said, ah, I found it. I found out what NASA means, and so from that day on, astronomy and space travel were like synonymous for me and i've always had an interest and in, always wanted to 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 get into that field in the 80s you know i i helped found the the, the sydney uni Astronomical society and then after i left to work at ibm and so on i started the endeavor astronautical society and did various other things and so the two were always synonymous and i guess you know when i came to parks i was able to combine the two you know do space tracking with the Galileo mission and other missions as well as astronomy okay. and, and so for me you know what i I always wanted to do saw myself as, as optical astronomy but coming to parks of course being a radio telescope i had to change the way i i think if you like to understand how radio astronomy differs from optical astronomy essentially it's the same it's just the wavelengths are a million times longer that's all and so you've got to use slightly different techniques but i think my background in applied physics and so on really aided me in getting a grip and handle on all that and understanding it a lot lot better and so um, you know for me it was a great uh, learning experience doing that applied physics because it had great relevance for what I ended up doing here.
0: Now, before we get on to the missions you've worked on, let's go back a little bit. We've got very strong Russian connections here at the Astrophys podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your time at Bayurikan in Armenia in the former USSR?
1: Yeah. Actually, the story goes back to 1989. I was backpacking through Europe at the time, and I thought I'd visit the Soviet Union when, you know, during the Gorbachev era, I was still communist and still firmly in the Cold War. And so I was only there for about 10 days or so. But I visited Armenia, West, where my ancestors were from. And while I was there, I uh, went up to the Buragan Observatory, which at the time was the second largest astronomical observatory in the Soviet Union. And I was only there for about 10 minutes or so because the bus that I was, that I was on <laughs> had to leave. So I hastily, my very, very broken Armenian and so on tried to, to let them know, I'd like to see the big the 100-inch telescope. And they took me around to the back of the campus there, and I could see it on the hillside. And I thought, oh, that's great. I took a few pictures. And as I was going back to the bus, the astronomer who was showing me around mentioned that they take a lot. Of, they, they often have overseas students work there for, for six months, a year or so. Yep. So when I returned to complete my applied physics degree as part of my degree at UTS, the University of Technology Sydney, we have to do industrial experience, you know, work a semester at various places. And normally the the lecturers would find work for you in Sydney or elsewhere in Australia. And so I remembered what that astronomer said and I asked if I could do mine overseas. And they were pleased because it meant that was one less thing that I had to look for, one less position. So at the time also, I, was, I had a summer scholarship at the Anglo-Australian Observatory, so I wrote to the observatory in the Soviet Union and asked if I could, and applied for a for a student position there. And to my complete astonishment, I got <laughs> accepted. And um, that was early 1991 in January. <laughs> it was too late to do the, the that semester, so I said, "Well, I'll do it on the second semester, beginning in July." So I arranged arranged all the travel. Documents and so on took a long, long time, as you can imagine, during the the Soviet era. And I arrived at the end of July. Three weeks later, there was the August coup attempt. Yep. um, Where the hardliners tried to overthrow Gorbachev, which failed. About three weeks after that, there was a, um, sorry, four weeks after that, there was a referendum, independence referendum in Armenia. So it, it actually seceded from the Soviet Union. And then on December the 25th, Christmas Day, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. Yep. And in January the following month, my work completed. I came back home. (laughs) Little did people know that I was there on covert operations uh, (laughs) to destroy the Soviet empire. (laughs) If anyone had told me before I left that by the time I returned to Australia six months later, there'd be no more Soviet Union, I would have thought they were crazy. Honestly, I would have thought they were crazy. It seemed such such a preposterous thing, you know, that this mighty Soviet Union would all be gone within months. Actually, see it happen to be there at the time and to see an, a nation suddenly collapse and disappear, the economy collapse, entire nation impoverished. That was truly eye-opening. The observatory I worked at had 88 astronomers. By the time I left, there were no, there was no one working there. Oh. There was no power, no electricity, no yeah. fuel, no no food, no water. Astronomers weren't paid for for several months. It was freezing. I got very, very little done actually. I had a whole list of things that I was to do when I was there, and unfortunately, because of the the very dramatic and historic circumstances, the the events that occurred, I wasn't able to complete everything. So I remember when I returned, I went to went back to my AAO offices and completed all my tasks in in two days. It really was an eye opener on how astronomy is done around the world. You know, comparing it with say Australia and with the the, the powerful Soviet Union. So even though I didn't get much science done, I learned I learnt much more than I thought I would, and of course it was a great experience. And yeah, and I maintained contacts with the astronomers there, but also in in Moscow, I'm, I knew some astronomers there and visited them. At one point, I was to go to the big sixty-four meter antenna radio telescope at Yevropatoria in yep. the Ukraine, Crimea, but. Because of the, the coup and the establishment of the Commonwealth of Independent States, it was suddenly a different country.
0: Yes. And
1: so uh, I didn't have a visa to visit the Ukraine, so I couldn't go. I was very upset. So the astronomers said, well, we're going to the big special astrophysical observatory, a six-meter telescope at Zelenskaya in the Russian Caucasus, which at the time was the largest optical telescope. But with just two weeks before we were to go, um, they cancelled my my trip there because they were very worried that I might be kidnapped and ransomed exactly. being a Westerner yep. um, because the nearest airport to the site was in a neighbouring republic even though Zelensky's sky was in Dagestan you had to land by plane in the, in a, in a neighbouring republic and then catch a bus to the observatory and that republic was Chechnya and of course the fighting broke out at that time Yes, and they were very worried that I might get kidnapped and ransomed and um, in fact some Westerners were and so it, it wasn't a misplaced concern again I was pretty disappointed I couldn't I can go imagine. but, but I did get back in one piece to Australia,
0: so I'm grateful for that. <laughs> Excellent. Now, let's move on, John, and yep. move on to your early work at Parks with Galileo. Mm-hmm. Okay, well,
1: 20 years ago this week. Yep. Yeah. Um, I started work at the Telescope on the 23rd of October, 1996, to, as a Galileo operator because, as you you may be aware, the NASA's Galileo spacecraft was, when it, soon after it was launched, the, the big high-gain antenna failed to unfurl properly. It was supposed to open up like an umbrella. That's right. But it was stuck, right. and re- despite all the best efforts of NASA and JPL, they just couldn't get it to unstick, and that was going to, um, they were actually facing disaster because, Without that antenna, they couldn't transmit the high-volume data that they wanted to send back from Jupiter. Yep. Um, the antenna, the high-gain antenna, which operated an X-band around 8.4 gigahertz, was designed to transmit 134,000 bits per second right. back to Earth. But without that, they couldn't do that. And so there was a small S-band antenna operating at around 2.4 gigahertz, but it was very low power and omnidirectional, and they could only get 10 bits per second from, <laughs> uh, of data. So, you know, 10 bits compared to 134,000 bits, well, you know, that was staring disaster in the face. But fortunately, it took several years to for the spacecraft to get there because it went on a long circuitous route, you know, with gravity-assisted the Earth and Venus and so on to get there. Yes, that they had plenty of time to come up with a solution. And the solution was to array or link so that not just the big antennas at the NASA tracking stations around the globe, but also include parks in that also, so that by linking this, the instruments together, they could boost the received signal strength and increase the bit rate from about 10 bits per second to 160 bits per second. Now that may not seem like a lot, but it's 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 nothing compared to 134,000 bits, but it's better than 10. <laughs> and by using really clever in um, you know data compression algorithms and and only prioritizing the high um, high priority signs and, and so on, they could they could actually salvage about 70% of the mission by doing that. And so the CSIRO was Parkes Telescope, it was contracted to provide that link. The idea was that for 10 hours, every day for one year, we would track the spacecraft as it rose above our horizon and track it until it set, and it would be linked with the big 70-metre dish at Tidbin as well as the 70-metre dish at Goldstone at the beginning and then also link it with two other 34-meter antennas at Tidbimbila, so that when all antennas were on Jupiter receiving the signal, they could get it up to uh, that 160 bits per second. But in order to do that, they needed people to operate it, and so I came in as one of three Galileo operators. We would work, you know, we each do one-third of the tracking duties over that year, and so, so I started working. The other two were appointed earlier in the year, so they had months to prepare. But I started it at, at parks one week before the tracks were to begin. So I had a really super steep learning curve. <laughs> and when I first started, I thought, oh, what have you done, John? You've bitten off more than you can chew. But I remember just thinking, you know, look no, no just treat it like it's a small telescope. The principle's the same. <laughs> so just scale it up, John. Don't don't let it don't be intimidated. So yeah, we began the, the, the formal tracks. Actually i I've got the date here. 28th of October 1996 and it went until the 6th of November 1997. So I was originally here for that one-year contract but during the time that I was here the person who was managing the tracking operations resigned and left and I was asked to to take over from him and we, you know assume his, his duties and so so when the contract was completed they advertised that position formally and I'd been doing it for for almost a year so I, I was very pleased that I, that I was able to get the job. So I, I joke now that I'm 20 years into my 11 month contract now. Excellent It was a fantastic time And to see the the mission succeed When at first it looked like it was going to be a total failure Was really satisfying We were contracted to support the the telescope For, I've got the exact figure here For 96.25% of the time Okay that wow. we were supposed to. If we That was our contract specification and I remember working really hard when I was managing it to get that number, to get that 90 because if, if we weren't tracking it for 96.25% we would be penalised financially, part of the contract.
0: And there'd be um, big holes in the data. That's right yeah but also
1: you know some of the things that might cause it would be like uh, equipment failure or operator error or even wind but in the end almost all the time we lost was because of wind. We didn't have any equipment failure or operator error in all that time and so we ended up with an overall uptime of 96.95%. We exceeded the contract specs, which people thought we, we weren't able to do. So I was very very pleased with that. But in order to support the mission, the telescope had to be completely upgraded and modified. We had to build a new receiver for the for the telescope to operate at S band, very low noise. It was only about 18 Kelvin, I think. It was very very uh, and very cold, cryogenically cool. But also we we built a new focus cabin for the telescope. Yep. The new cabin was double the size. Of Weight of the old one and could house several receivers in the the focus cabin and move any one of them onto the focus within a minute or so whereas in the past you'd have to dismantle it and bring it down and take the new one up and assemble it you could spend a day doing that but because they only, they only needed us to track Galileo for 10 hours a day if we only had the one receiver then we couldn't really do much else with the other 14 hours so we told NASA ATNF, the Australian Telescope National Facility our division of CSRO told NASA sure we can do it but you'll have to rent it for 24 hours a day because the remaining 14 hours was pretty much unusable with that receiver yep. and so nasa realized if they spent three million dollars financing the construction of new focus cabins so that we could move receivers on and off very quickly that would be a good option because then we could we change receivers and uh, do radio astronomy for the remaining 14 hours and then switch back again very quickly for the next galileo track the following day and so we did that and then so nasa spent three million dollars financing the construction of the new focus cabin and then they rented it to hours every day for one year. <laughs> it was still cheaper than running it for 24 hours a day. And of course it made the telescope a much better instrument, made it more frequency agile and in fact that has been the history of the park's Telescope's relationship with NASA and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory because each time that we've tracked a spacecraft for NASA we've usually upgraded the telescope in some way so that we have a better instrument to do radio astronomy and NASA has a, a more capable instrument for the next time they want to use it. So it's a win-win situation for Both of us. And so that new focus cabin, because it was bigger, meant that we could build bigger, more versatile type of receivers. For example, we in January nineteen ninety seven, when we were just a few months into the Galileo tracks, we installed the new thirteen beam multi-beam receiver, which was basically thirteen receivers in one that allowed us to see thirteen points simultaneously on the sky. You can think of it as a thirteen pixel radio camera. It's nothing compared to the multi-megapixel optical cameras that we have, you know, you can buy off the shelf. But when you consider that conventional receivers could only look at a single point a single pixel on the sky it's it's a substantial improvement it meant you could do surveys 13 times faster you could see 13 times more sky in any one time and we, so we began all these surveys that allowed us to discover over 700 new pulsars we doubled the previous known number of pulsars we were able to survey the entire universe visible from parks out to 300 million light years and, so, and also peer through the Milky Way to see what lay beyond on for the first time so those surveys that we did with the new multi-beam receiver completely rejuvenated and helped revolutionize the way we we see the universe and so so that Galileo failure you know, and Parks' involvement was actually ended up being a great thing for parks and uh, and for radio astronomy in general and so so you know every cloud has a silver lining brendan and you always make the, the most of what you what you get even even the disappointments in life <laughs> and you you just got to try and, and do as well as you can can, um, with what you've got, and very satisfying to see that how the, the telescope was rejuvenated. When they built the telescope back in 1961, it was only intended to have a lifetime of 20 years. So in a week's time, we'll be commemorating 55 years of operation. So Fantastic. we've well clearly exceeded that. And the reason for it is because we've continually upgraded the telescope, both the external structure and but also all the internal stuff. You know, the, it's fully computer controlled now. We have cryogenic cooled receivers, fiber optic lines everywhere. You can even operate the telescope over the internet so that the combined upgrades over the years has meant that today the telescope is over ten thousand times more sensitive than when it was built and it's an extremely versatile instrument you can do many different types of observations very quickly so it allows you to follow up in a multi-frequency sort of regime and do lots of different types of observations from vlbi to spectral line observations pulsars space tracking you name it or even SETI. you know we're also searching for extraterrestrial intelligences well. so it's a great great place to work and and I often have to pinch myself that that, you know that random walk that I took after school I ended up being where I wanted to be.
0: Indeed and Uh, you've been recognized for that work with a AOM here in Australia so congratulations for that and you've gone and worked on a lot of iconic missions and we could probably talk in detail about each of them but I think we'll have to move on to the Pathfinder and ASCAP. What are your hopes for SKA and Australia's role in SKA?
1: That's right, yeah. Well, the Square Kilometre Array is envisioned to be the very next-generation radio telescope. It'll have a collecting area of a million square metres. Of course, you can't build a single dish that large. It's just physically impossible. It'll be equivalent to building a telescope over 310 times bigger than Park, so it's just impossible. But instead, the plan is to, to build thousands of smaller antennas and then link them all together so that the combined collecting area of all those antennas will be a million square metres. So we're calling it the Square Kilometre Array. Australia was hoping to host the facility in Western Australia, but a few years ago, back in 2012, the decision by the consortium of 20 countries who have come together to build it was that they wanted to build it in South Africa, and so that's going ahead. The stage one, hopefully, should be construction for that, which is up to the 10% of the SKA. Will be construction for that will begin shortly and hopefully be completed by 2020. They'll then pause for a year or two to see how it's all going, and then then. Then look for commitment to continue for to the rest. But in our bid to win the the hosting rights for the SKA, our division of CSIRO, the Astronomy and Space Science Division, built a, a Pathfinder instrument at our chosen site in Western Australia, about 350 kilometres east of Geraldton in Western Australia. It's a very very remote part of the the country in the Murchison Shire, and very free of radio frequency interference, which is what you want for an extremely sensitive instrument like that. And so we're building there. We built there 36 antennas, which we called the Australian Square Conrad Pathfinder. as a pathfinder for the SKA so that once it was built we could demonstrate that we could build the SKA and operate it and so on so that hopefully we would win the the major bid. We missed out on that but we're still completing the the pathfinder which we call ASCAP, Australian Square Kilometre Pathfinder and we're actually nearing completion for that by um, about this time next year all 36 antennas should be, have their what we call phased array feed receivers on them. At the moment we have 12 antennas with those feeds on and just a, a week or so ago we began early science with those 12 antennas and so as, as each new antenna has these new radio receivers installed We'll bring them online and progressively increase our, our scope, if you like, um, until we have all 36 operating by about this time next year or sooner if we can manage it. So I'm a member of the, the ASCAP operations team. So we'll be operating the telescope remotely. You don't We don't want people to visit the site because as soon as you, you introduce human beings, you'll be introducing radio frequency interference because invariably you're going to need equipment to support them and, and so on. So we don't want people to visit the site. So all operations will be remote and we began regular remote observations I think just last week and things are progressing pretty well with some pretty good initial results from the early science and we'll just be ramping that up over the next year until full operations with the full array begin about this time next year.
0: Thank you so much John. Would you like to finish off with a personal rant or rave?
1: The science is always done by, by wealthy countries, wealthy organizations and so on. What I learned when I was in the Soviet Union was that when an economy collapses, science comes to a grinding halt because yep. people have other priorities only wealthy countries that have sufficient surplus wealth to give you a few crumbs here and there to do to do science are the ones that actually do science yep. and so I always advise astronomers that if you want to do astronomy make sure your country is wealthy okay, okay. <laughs> because you won't be doing any astronomy if there's no money the history of science is that you know society needs sufficient surplus wealth to do science countries have other priorities you know when you're hungry you don't you don't think of science you look at where the next meals coming from. And I said, I saw that first hand. You know, the observatory went from being at Buregun, the second largest observatory in the Soviet Union, to having no one work there took over 10 years for it to get up to maybe 10, 12, 15 astronomers, but it's never back to where it was. And so, you know, science is an extremely worthwhile – it's a cultural pursuit. You know, people often ask, you know, what do you do science? You know, what what point is it? You can always rattle off, you know, the, uh, the spin-offs like Wi-Fi and, and other things, you know, that come from it, like from astronomy, for example, okay? But essentially, it's, it's a cultural Think. Why do you listen to music? Why do you watch sport? Why do you go to concert? You know, you could live long, happy lives with or long lives without any of those, but be a miserable life. <laughs> and you know, people just want to know about the universe around them, and the knowledge you get from that has spin-offs. You know, you can devise new technology, new cures for illnesses, um, new electronic devices to make life more efficient and in, um, in the modern world, and so on, and so on. But but science itself is a worthwhile cultural pursuit. But you need good funding to do it, and only the wealthy can afford to do it. So you've got to make sure your country is wealthy. Very good. The future's looking bright.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, John Sarkissian, the operations scientist at Parks. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. <whistles> Hello, Nadeshda Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Nadezhda. What are you going to tell us about today?
2: Well, today I am going to tell you about George Antonovich Gamow and the discoveries that were made leading up to the prediction and discovery of the cosmic microwave background by Penzias and Wilson. Okay. Well, the microphone's all yours, Nadezhda. Take it away. Thank you, Brendan. So what we are talking about today is cosmology, the study of the whole cosmos and the universe. So first, we will define what the cosmic microwave background radiation actually is. It's the leftover radiation from the time of a recombination era. So because we have the Big Bang and we understand pretty much Everything has happened up until one fraction of a second. And it's a very short fraction of a second after the Big Bang. So we know what has happened up until 10 raised to the power of 35. So if we take one second and divide it by 10 to the power of 35, then we have a very small fraction of a second. Well, we know what has happened since that point onwards. We don't know what happened actually at the Big Bang. So from that point on, we had a very hot and very small universe. And it expands. It inflates at an incredible rate. Eventually, it cools down to 3000 degrees and then the atoms formed. And hence, photons could travel easily now, it's what we call a transparency time. So the universe up until that time was opaque. Now when the universe was about 3000 degrees Kelvin, it was an orange hue. Now that expansion has been going on now for almost 14 billion years. and as it expands the wavelength has redshifted and instead of being an orange hue for the background it is now in the order of microwaves as it cools the temperature of the cosmic microwave background is 2.725 degrees kelvin now that is very cold gamow in 1948 predicted that the CMB would be about five degrees. So he was uh, close, but no cigar. A group from Princeton University was looking specifically for this cosmic microwave background. Meanwhile, two other researchers, Penzias and Wilson, had a radio telescope. It was a horn antenna. And they kept on getting this hiss in every direction, no matter where they pointed their device. They kept on getting this background hiss and they didn't know what it was. They checked their circuitry, no dice. They checked if there was pigeon poo inside their horn antenna. And they polished it and got rid of every speck of dust. But still this background radiation remained it was a big puzzle for them so now we will step back a little bit and go back to the time of Hubble. Hubble told us the universe was expanding and Georgie Antonovich Gemal took the thinking a step further you see if we take a film of the expanding universe and play the film backwards The universe gets smaller and smaller, denser and denser. Now, when you compress gas, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And at some point, that density is so strong that even photons are trapped inside a sea of particles and energy. And the universe is essentially opaque. Now we run the film forward again, and when the universe has cooled sufficiently, the atoms can separate out and the photons can travel freely. And from that point on, the universe is transparent. And that light, those photons, from the moment the universe became transparent, are still there. It is still Detectable and has a temperature of 2.725 degrees Kelvin. Kamau predicted 5 degrees, not too bad in 1948 for a theoretician. However, not many people had read about his team's prediction. So, we're in the 1960s now. Penzias and Wilson are still puzzled by this background hiss they were detecting in every direction and someone suggested they should telephone Professor Bob Dickey at Princeton University. You see, Dickey and his team were already looking for the cosmic microwave background because they had also had the theory that an early, hot, dense universe would release background radiation. They had not finished constructing their detecting instrument, but Penzias and Wilson had already found what they were looking for. Dickie came off the telephone to Penzias and said to his colleagues, Boys, we've been scooped. So now it is all history. Georgie Antonovich Kemmel... ...made the first prediction of cosmic microwave background. But he did not get the Nobel. The Nobel Prize went to Penzias and Wilson, who found it accidentally. It is so serendipity, Brendan. I love this story. I think it is a funny story. But science is like that. Perhaps not so funny for Georgy Antonovich Kemmel, I am thinking... But
0: that's it, Brendan. Bye for now. Thank you, Natasha. See you next week. Hello, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Brendan. How's things going? Excellent. Thank you very much. So can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week? Strangely enough, Venus and Saturn
3: and Mars, exact like it's been for the past few weeks. Venus is higher in the sky than it was. The pair, the triplet of Venus, and Antares, and Saturn, it remains rather spectacular looking. We saw that straight line. It looks fabulous. It looked fabulous for those who were in Tasmania. They actually got to see on the night of the the night of the straight line. Not only did they get to see the straight line and luckily for them, they also saw the International Space Station pass, but they also got to see a little bit of an aurora as well. So they got a, a triple whammy.
0: The, tr- uh, was the really trifecta. Quite, quite the- they
3: got a trifecta, so quite a few people got clear skies and got some really beautiful experiences. I was actually down the beach for that, and not only did I get the International Space Station going above the trio, I managed to get the reflection of the trio in a tidal pool off the beach, and the you know how you get the what's called the ladder to the moon, the the, the lighting of the moon uh, in the ocean. Yes, uh, I managed to get the same effect with. Venus, so it had uh, Venus, Antares, and Saturn. Then the the pathway to Venus of the light of Venus in the ocean, and then the, the reflection of the three in the ocean itself. So it was a really amazing effect. So, um, so that was really special. But uh, although uh, Venus it has is moving away from the pair of Saturn and Antares uh, and beginning to leave Scorpio behind as it heads into bucus and then uh, moving towards uh, Sagittarius. Yep the triangle formed by Venus and the other two, it looks really nice. Of course, at the moment there's been a lot of cloud in the sky, so I haven't been able to follow it up, but for those of you watching, with clear skies it's gone from being a straight line to a crooked line and as the nights wear on, you'll see it become more and more of a triangle. Yes. So, it'll still look beautiful, but it'll be a different kind of beauty as it goes on. The last week, I left you with the crescent moon, joining yes. the line-up. This week starts with the crescent moon forming a diamond shape. Antares, Venus, Saturn and the moon itself yep. looking very very nice and then the moon moves further up uh, leaving the uh, the trio behind as it heads towards Mars and on the 6th of November yes, the moon is closer to Mars and then it moves further away waxing as it goes. But keep your eye on Venus for the moment because as Venus moves away from the and and Saturn, it's moving through some interesting territory. If you have a pair of binoculars, you'll see that Venus is actually with the same binocular field as a globular cluster known as M19. At the start of the week, it'll be relatively close. It'll move away during the week. Now, in this sense, it's following the path of Mars that we talked about earlier in the uh, podcast. However, because Venus is so much brighter, astrophotography of pairing of uh, Venus and M19 will be extraordinarily difficult. The brightness of Venus will really overwhelm the dim globular cluster. Okay. You should be able to, to see it with your naked eyes. We're trying to take photographs will be really, really difficult. Okay. And then on the fifth, as you watch it, Venus is moving towards a bright star called Theta Opikai. Yep. It's not very bright. It's relatively bright. It's about magnitude three. But on the fifth, it is very close. It's not actually right on top of it. It'll be something on the order of fifteen arc seconds away, which is yeah, pretty close. Yep. But looking at it with your unaided eye, it'll it'll completely disappear in the brightness of Venus. So that'll be something to watch. And also, speaking of close encounters, if we go to... uh, We've been neglecting Mars. Mars has faded enormously since we've been talking about it. It's gone from being a really bright and recognisable object to a dim ember, much faded, but no longer quite. It is still one of the brighter objects in the sky, but it's no longer outstandingly bright. On the 7th and 8th of November... It's going to be quite close to a smallish globular cluster, M75. So M75 is not very uh, bright. It's magnitude 8.6. Very good. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us? It's rising in part from the fact now Venus is quite high in the evening sky. where the sky, is very dark and Venus is very bright, and it's really quite obvious. And also from some of the things that have been occurring on Facebook, Groups at the moment. Yep. Now, the last time Venus was obvious in the evening skies, we were getting lots of really weird reports coming out. One from my suburb where Venus was reported as being a flare. <laughs> yes, and there's been a, a, quite a few reports on Facebook of uh, interesting things where a variety of, of uh, objects have been reported in uh, camera photographs as being a mysterious possible planet <laughs> now that the, the hunt is on for planet nine has been a renewed recording of weird objects in uh, photographs as being potential planet nine
0: not to mention uh, not to mention nibiru
3: let's not mention nibiru <laughs> uh, and, and i thought i'd just talk about things to do before you report something as being a planet yep now Let's, let's. There's a. There's a lot of amateur astronomers out there, and a lot of real, real astronomers have been looking at things. And there's a. So we understand what the sky looks like. So if you catch something. That you have in a photograph that you haven't seen before. There's a couple of things you should check before you go and say go on a forum and say, is this Planet X or uh, is this a flare or is this something unknown?
0: Yeah.
3: One of the classics came from the United Kingdom where the police have been called out to uh, check out a, a UFO and uh, uh, the uh, exchange came over the radio. Uh, have you checked out this object? And the reply came back, yes, it's the moon, over. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And the first thing you should do is check out an astronomical almanac. Now, in these days of uh, smartphones, there's all these different astronomical planetarium programs you can get on your phone. I've got uh, Google Sky. Uh, There's also the Sky, Real Sky, and a whole bunch of things you can get on your phone, whether it's an iPhone or an Android phone. There's a whole bunch of things. You can, within five seconds of finding something that you don't understand, uh, don't recognise in the sky, check it out on a Google application. Yes. Uh, if you if you don't have a, something on a mobile phone, there's a range of free astronomical programs. I use Stellarium extensively as a free program. We've mentioned this before on this program. I use Stellarium extensively. I also use a number of other programs. Celestia
0: always, is another free
3: one that's very good Celestia is another free one but there's also again the sky there's a free version of the sky uh, there's, there's a whole range of them that you can use which uh, you can download and check uh, when, you're, when you're looking at something it's always a good idea to make sure you know which direction you're facing uh, what the time is We've also talked about Heavens Above and we talked about CalSky last week. Uh, these are uh, programs for matching satellites against the sky, just in case what you're looking at is a satellite. And the other thing is to check to see that it's still there the next night. If it's a real planet or, or star, then it should be there the next night. If it's moved, the planet's move, stars. Stars tend, uh, don't, under normal circumstances, against the background stars. Yes. So you should be able to track its movements. Comets, for example, uh, people seem to be under the impression that comets whoosh by, whereas no, comets do move uh, rapidly with respect to the background stars, but they move rapidly in the sense that they will, they will uh, be in a different position from night to night, but they don't whoosh across the sky in a few minutes like, say, a meteorite. So it should be there the next night in a different position. You should be able to track it. Um, the same goes with planets. If you can only see it in the back of your your camera and not with your una- unaided eye, then there's probably an issue. You're probably seeing an artifact in the camera. Yes. If you check your camera. The camera artifact's a really big issue. So there's a range of things you need to do to make sure that what you're seeing is something real before you go running off and uh, claiming that you're
0: seeing a new planet. And the good news for anyone out there that's having any problems with their equipment, just remember that whatever problem you've got, someone else has had that same problem previously. So a good place to start is just to look on forums on the internet, to try social media, and it inevitably you'll find some way of solving your problem just by seeing other people's solutions. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astro, Blog Musgrove. More than happy to be here and to, to chat about these things. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. Radio, Radio. Wave!